and a warm welcome to the Centre-Left Politics Podcast with myself, Carl Quilliam, and my co-hosts, Owen Gardner and Malcolm Clark. After a week away, I'm glad to be back, and I'm sure I was very much missed. Um, <laughs> I'm reading that out, so uh, hopefully that does mean I was very much missed. Uh, it was <laughs> listeners are reminded to subscribe and that new episodes arrive every week on Fridays at 5pm. So how was your week, Owen and Malcolm? Yeah, not bad. Uh, busy. Uh, and it started to rain. It's not really stopped since. So it's, um, we've got a swimming pool outside for free. Mm-hmm. Unlike Rishi Sunak, who put it on the taxpayer. So it's, um, so yeah. <laughs> well, for me, Carl, uh, it was similar, but where I live is on a bit of a bank. So my garden gets nicely flooded, but drains away very quickly, I've found over 10 years of living here. First time it ever happened, it was a very big concern. I thought the whole, I thought I was going to get it, but to be honest, I've seen some horrendous rain that's never, it's on a bit of a bank, so it tends to sit and then it goes. But yeah, there's been some places around here. Lanchester, for example, made the news, mm-hmm. got absolutely battered, uh, flooded the, the the main street, which given, uh, it's funny, I bet that doesn't appear on the Tories leaflets. Um, most other things do, because <laughs> um, they, they were all for what they do. Um, the last leaflet I think I said came out as green, didn't come out as blue, because mm-hmm. and the tor- the conservative size of the font call is reduced by about 150%. So they just talk about your local councillors. It's no longer your local conservative councillors. That's written in very small writing in invisible ink at the bottom. It's actually not invisible, but you, you know, it may as well be. Um, so it's quite funny how that's going on, even though they claim that there's no problem. Uh, so yeah, it's been a fun week, very busy at work. And uh, as ever, I do this podcast uh, very much looking forward to the weekend. But how's how about you, Carl? What have you been up to? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that, the reason I was away, obviously, was half-term last week. I was up in Leeds. I managed somehow, and I, I don't think I've ever managed this before, I missed the terrible weather both ways when I was driving. So I, I didn't have to drive in the in the driving rain, uh, which was quite nice. Um, but, yeah, uh, my my weekend, this weekend, was, yeah, basically, I had a, I had a rest on Saturday, which... I was quite I was quite emphatic about because I was knackered. And I was... <laughs> what I do you do when you rest? Do you just like lie down or do you just do like housework and so it's not really a rest, it's just not flying about for things? No. No. Doing housework is not a rest, Malcolm. I'm just going <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not one of those people. I, I had a sit down and I had a lie down. You are the horizontal type want... of rester. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A real rest. An actual That's, rest. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, I get once, may, maybe once a quarter, if, I, if I'm lucky. Um, so I had that, and then uh, and then just to make up for that, I drove for six hours down to London, so that was good. <laughs> um, but yeah, otherwise, it's been, good, been a good week. Yeah, I think I've, um, I've got to qualify that my idea of a rest, like, if I'm lying down, that feels like hard work for me. So, you know, I try to like, rest is, is difficult to really ascertain what that is I think it's just unconscious but uh <laughs> but yes yeah, but it's nice to have you back um obviously they don't have internet in Leeds so you couldn't be there so uh <laughs> it's good to have you back well yeah I'm not gonna I'm not gonna start that <laughs> anti-Leeds Well, we have got a plan, haven't we, to eventually, I mean, Owen, you're obviously uh, invited to this because we had discussed it before you arrived, but of course we would bring you with us, um, is to eventually do one in person. 
um, which would probably involve us jumping on a train to Leeds and then finding a because I think there's right next to the station. Am I right, Carl? There's a there's a place you can do recording. Or was am I just making that up? Uh, no, there definitely is. Um, yeah, let's um, let's organise it outside of the podcast though, because it might I get. Mean, it just popped into my head, so it got. It it just popped into my head, so I said it, which makes me very worried for the Israeli Gaza section. Um, but yes, <laughs> I'll try not to do that then. Well, which is a a, a good link into uh, a quick rundown of uh, the topics that we're going to cover this week. Um, it's a it's a big week this week. There's a lot of kind of meaty subjects to get into. Um, so we've got the COVID inquiry. Obviously, Dominic Cummings was probably the the headline act um, on that. As always, he can he's quite good at making making headlines but there's some quite high profile people very senior civil servants as well um the israel gaza conflict i think uh, as before we're not going to get into um the sort of ins and outs and details of the conflict itself um but it has obviously had quite an impact on the labor party so um i think it's you know we thought it was worth us talking about that and the kind of the politics of that that's probably the thing that we can add to that discussion. Um, AI Summit in Bletchley, that's just finished today. Um, Rishi and I were supposed to be talking to Elon Musk. We may well touch on that. Uh, polling in Scotland has put Labour ahead for the first time as well. We'll talk about that. And Rachel Reeves and Wikipedia, if you've seen that, we'll be talking about that right at the end. If we can fit it in, I think, because we're depending on how long we could take on the rest of it. Um, so I guess the first, yeah, the first thing is obviously the COVID inquiry. Uh, Dominic Cummings has been giving evidence this week, um, as have uh, a whole range of others. I mean, there was quite there's quite a stark headline today, uh, basically suggesting that the you know, one of the um, people giving evidence yesterday was suggesting that um, the lack of women at the top and the, some of the kind of misogyny and the, the sexism, you know, innate sexism that went on um, had some genuine impacts on the decisions that were made um, uh, affecting women in the pandemic, which is quite, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite affronting, I think, uh, quite a lot of the stuff that's come out of that. Uh, the inquiry, obviously, itself is going to last until late 2026, so there'll be more to come on this. Um, I don't know, Malcolm, if you wanted to sort of kick off and, and talk a little bit about it. I mean, there's been, it's, it, in a in a week that's been dominated by the Israel-Gaza conflict in the news, there's been a lot of news that's come out of this, about out of this inquiry. What was the thing that kind of jumped out for you? Yeah, I mean, it was like kind of must-see television, wasn't it? You know, in, in amongst everything else. Um, for example, um, my mother was sort of glued to it all day. You know, it was sort of a full... She's retired. That was his full, you know, was not to be missed. <clears throat> what I did see from from her and from other, her obviously read about it from other people was kind of everybody has a, a sort of a COVID story um, and, and a, an experience and sometimes quite a difficult one. So happy to share the one that you know my family is. My nan passed away in late 2021. So for the last two years of her life, and she was absolutely diligent. She would not. She wouldn't even let us in the house. Had to sit outside our chair, and she would stand at the door. I mean, she was really careful. Um, and thankfully never caught it so you know that's something that we look back on and think like we did what we had to do we did what we were told um and and yet you know the the 
the way that it was managed, you know, we saw even the WhatsApp like messages, the language used. If you think about it in the round, they're just messages exchanged, but it sort of was symbolic, I think, of the way that it was handled just by this very sort of macho culture. And I, and I get the point about, you know, the women could provide a balance to that. Um, I think if you, you know, I think if you have good, good women doing it, I think it, you get different types of people, you know, different quality. But I think definitely that was a very, a very. But I think in some ways we cashed the check that we paid in when we elected these people. I know he picked Cummings, but it was Boris Johnson was in charge, and I heard some ridiculous comments like, "This was the wrong uh, crisis for this prime minister." ridiculous comment a prime minister should be able to handle any conflict that's why the the prime minister you're supposed to be the best one just had to say oh this doesn't quite suit his skill set well I, he didn't go into detail of what is his skill set i probably we all know why um but yeah so for me it just paints a picture it's illustrative of just how chaotic it was you had people like matt hancock and you know dominic cummins and boris johnson at the top what did we expect was going to happen totally horrendous and i think the inquiry when it eventually comes out a few few years time will paint a very very dark picture over over that whole time yeah i mean there's been some real some real kind of like 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 say there's been some quite sort of stark quotes that have come out from this i mean there's a headline that's still on the bbc at the moment that's uh from uh evidence given by simon stevens where matt hancock wanted to decide who should live and die if the nhs was overwhelmed um, which is quite a thing. Um, Boris Johnson, I, the front page of the, the Star today, um, he apparently asked if um, COVID could be killed by putting a hair, putting a hair dryer up your nose. I mean, I don't think COVID thought, could be, but I think you would be. <laughs> yeah, um, I, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I just, I, I didn't think. When this sort of, I didn't think there could be anything more. Yeah, you know, given the number of revelations we've had before this week, I could, didn't think there could be anything more. But there is, there's a lot more. Um, I mean, what what jumps out from for you, Owen? Because yeah, there's been a lot. <laughs> oh, tons. Uh, I think my first right is it's the sort of the barefaced cheek that they all kind of come in and they think it's okay. And thinking about the more saying that there wasn't a day when she was in number 10 when the rules were followed it's astonishing in and of itself putting to one side Cummings comments about her but because um, they're not worth repeating um but i think that on a sort of lighter level it has been good to, to see and very funny to watch quite well-spoken people swearing in court um and yeah. you, can see, you can see them trying not to laugh but it's um but it has been, it has tempered the rubbishness. But I mean, Cummings, it's just been awful listening to what he said and accepting that it, it, it was in some way normal. Uh, so it was good to, when um, uh, Casey said, um, Mr. Cummings, did you take your uh, family, oh, so did you go to Abdullah uh, Castle to have you uh, to test your eyesight? Yes. Mm. Uh, Oh, right, fair enough. Um, so why did, did you have to take your wife and child with you to test your eyesight? Well, of course I had to. Ah, so it wasn't just your wife's birthday then, was it? And he, he could see it. He, he literally went back in his seat and he couldn't speak for two or three seconds. And that was good to see. Uh, but generally, it just, it, it proves how ill-prepared 
ill thought through and badly managed everything was. And especially given the fact that, um, again, I can't remember her first name, but Thingy McNamara pointed out to Simon Stevens or one of the NHS bosses that the P- Helen McNamara, uh, that the PPE that it had in, uh, in the store didn't fit women properly. But the majority of people who were going to be wearing it, whether in social care, in a hospital setting, or anywhere else, were women. And you think if that was pointed out in 2016, and it took them, what, four, four and a half years to realise that actually maybe we'd best go and buy some, uh, only for it to be burnt. Um, it's crazy. Where's the preparedness? Where's the ability to think beyond the next headline? And to people who have lost people through COVID, it's sort of, they had to live with that every day. But the people who were in power have walked away. I think it's been very difficult for people to, to, to watch it, I think, a lot of times. Like I said, I think people have, like you say, it was sort of, in, in because it was so outrageous, it was almost amusing. It's like our natural reaction to make light of it because it's so serious and so crazy, you know, to, to sort of laugh. The, I mean, I just wondered if, if there was some strands of truth in there regarding the, the size of the cabinet office, for example, and he certainly wasn't the right person to probably diagnose it or even certainly not to fix it. But I just wonder whether that, that has been a, an issue um, in, in regard to how vast the civil service is. Now, the, the answer probably isn't as simple as just shred it down to, to the smallest parts because it's got a huge responsibility. But, for example, you've got to remember a lot of these people have had many years of almost complete focus on Brexit. And the health service was one area where definitely lost out. The other point I would raise, um, just for hand back to you, Carl, is with the fraud, we've all done a government tender. It's very difficult to win them, unless you've got Matt Hancock's WhatsApp and they were getting millions and there's billions being took away. Now that that will come out in the wash. So this is almost the sensational stuff. This is the headline stuff that everybody wanted to watch. But there are some really serious issues yet to be looked into in that inquiry that could well be um, criminal. Uh, in terms of what happened and and not just criminal in terms of the fraud that where they didn't deliver what they should but how they actually got that in the first place and I don't know whether anyone would ever be held accountable for that in law but somebody somewhere has authorised that and the checks and balances has failed in terms of people who'd never produced something before were getting massive contracts for things that they had no um, track record of delivering and then didn't deliver it but got all the money yeah, um, and uh, <clears throat> it'll be interesting to see what role Dominic Cummings does or doesn't play in that because he was—he's been quite vocal about actually wanting to ride roughshod over the um, the kind of normal processes and procedures. Um, I mean, in, arguably, certainly from his perspective, for a good reason to get things done quickly. Um, but like you say, those things weren't done because the the processes. Uh, that were followed as they as such they were didn't deliver what was needed so um yeah and like you say this is you know, like we said this is going to be going for a few years yet um so there's more details come out but i i i like i say i thought i couldn't be be any more shocked given the kind of the type you know the kind of long flow of party gate stories and this some of the stuff that's come out this week has been quite shocking they, the the things that they were saying about each other mm-hmm. you know they were you know it was a sort of in some ways a sort of circular firing squad all all kind of 
they were all pointing at each other and saying you're incompetent and actually pretty much all of them were by the sounds of it they were kind of right but <laughs> not, not for the right reasons um but i think it's all just part of that i think that's what they mean by the macho culture and that the professional women just wouldn't do that it just wouldn't happen and i think that's where because i think as well like i was thinking about it i thought like sometimes i'm i whatsapp and i say crazy things just to just to make the other side laugh and maybe it shouldn't because if it was read by somebody else they might get you know huge offended by it but for me it's just a lot of what i say is tongue-in-cheek and it's why i've always got to be careful my humor on x for example where i say something just as a funny retort and the next thing i've got you know the left gun crackers and somebody retweeting it like our friend over in city durham and and then it starts to go go silly and it's like i didn't intend it for that reason but then when you write it people can can use it and i think there's, there's a lot to be said i remember saying that one of my grandparents used to say to me was don't write anything down that you wouldn't be prepared to stand up in a room and and read out and you know if we all live by that every day especially these days in the modern world things would be a lot straight more straightforward i'm sure dominic cummings would probably grudgingly agree <laughs> at this stage because there's just lots of examples of it and i'm sure you know it's almost an interesting point i wondered because obviously it's not <clears throat> it's not illegal unless it's been formally requested to delete whatsapp messages right but you just think the, because people have an idea in the head that they may one day write a book <laughs> to keep them and then we can get they get them formally requested if it was me i'd have probably just deleted them all but you know they, they keep them for probably that purpose and it's uh, it doesn't help them well we had a big chunk of one of our shows talking about when matt hancock gave all of his whatsapp messages to a journalist <laughs> yeah it's just not not just the ones that they asked for just everything <laughs> his entire phone um... It's, 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 it is worth saying because we've mentioned Helen McNamara and some of her evidence was quite shocking. It's worth mentioning, I think, that she was also... I think she was the one that said that the, the rules were almost never followed. She was also the person that brought a karaoke machine uh, to leaving <laughs> my call. So, yeah. you know, that, that's to the point about them. <laughs> they, all, they all fell down. Well, that was the point ways. I was very gently making without falling into a trap of, you know, the, this general thing about, you know, the macho culture. I do agree with it. I just want to nuance it slightly by saying that nobody's perfect. So the, the, the idea that you can just bring a certain type of person in, whoever they may be, and everything gets all right. Not quite true, but the point is a good one. Yeah, and pe- people that love karaoke typically not great in a pandemic, I suppose. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a not that's when you're not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, is is there anything any more for any more? I mean, there's so much we could talk about on this. Like I sort of said at the beginning that we could we could probably use a whole show up on this. Is there anything else that uh, either of you wanted to kind of pull out from? Just that I think, you know, that people are going to pay really close attention to the COVID inquiry now. I think moving forward, it'll just be a... Um, I was very surprised at the timeline. I think I think they're taking evidence until late 2026. So that, that, that means, I think, that you're looking at at least another year before they publish anything, so probably longer. With three years of evidence to look into, so you're probably looking at the back end of this decade. Um, and I just think that it's very 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 difficult because there's so much to go through will it still be relevant by that time almost 10 years since the pandemic it'll feel a very long time away 
Um, <clears throat> I appreciate that inquiries do take forever and look at the Iraq ones as a great example of that. It's like 12 years was one of them. Um, it just feels like it could be a bit sooner. I think that for me, it's important to have that inquiry, but maybe there, there was a case for deeper dives into smaller areas that would eventually become one big publication. But I think that's what they're kind of doing, but with nothing getting reported for years, to me that just, I, I would have rather have seen something a bit sooner. Because a lot of the people who it relates to will be finished by then. Matt Hancock being one, for example, who'd be well out of politics by then, he's, he's leaving at the next election. So, And a lot of the, the other ones involved, Boris, you know, long time by then, you presume he's not going to get back into Parliament at this stage. You know, it has to. It, it's a horrible feeling to think that when the eventual publication is made, that it, people will just go, "Yeah." No, I mean, I, I was going to say, I mean, Boris will be with the Tories again by that point. Surely, that's the. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, well, that's a, that's another episode, I think, isn't it? Um... Uh, I, I used to say that couldn't happen, but you know, I'm saying nothing. Now. Well, eighth time lucky, uh, Farage. <laughs> Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I sort of, I, I generally agree. I think it would, it would be better if it could, if they could have um, put a quicker timeline on it, because um, there's a lot of, you know, there's there's people out there that are uh, wanting answers as well. It's not just, uh, you know. Um, so move, moving on. So we said at the beginning we we're going to talk about the. Well, I think the impact of the the conflict in Israel and Gaza on Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. So obviously, there's a there's a lot we could say about the conflict itself. Uh, I think we said in previous episodes that we're probably not the best placed uh, to talk about that. It's obviously quite fast moving as well. There's a lot going on, um, but we thought we can't really ignore the the impacts on Keir Starmer and the Labour Party because it's. Um, it's been quite extensive. There's been, uh, and over an, a, a fair bit of time now, it's sort of evolved. When I first thought we we were going to talk about this, um, actually, I thought it was probably just a, a matter of, of party management. But there's some quite, you know, there, there's some things that popped up in quite a few different places on this issue now. Um, I, th- I guess the first thing that I I was thinking, I think the sort of the thing that jumped out at me really is that um one obviously fairly early doors, we had quite a lot of councillors resigning. Um we've also had quite a lot of disquiet from different parts of the party, um, on the kind of the line uh, the the sort of the line that is causing the issue is this line around whether it should be a ceasefire or humanitarian pauses, and there's been some um, members of the shadow cabinet, reportedly, who have been uh, certainly expressed concerns about that, um, and ones that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So people that are allies of Keir Starmer, where Streeting is one, I think, who was reported as saying that you know, there, could, there could be impacts on um, Labour, both in the Muslim community in particular, which I think is something that's kind of playing out uh, to some degree in some places. Um, and it feels like, and and this is all happening at a time when Keir Starmer is in the Labour Party are, are way, way ahead in the polls and are in opposition. So actually, as the leader of opposition, there are things that you can do 
but the powers of the British government, you know, the powers of Rishi Sunak in this situation are limited. They're, you know, you know, there are diplomatic levers that you can pull to kind of influence what's going on. Um, but the leader of the opposition has, that, you know, e- even less than that. Um, and also doesn't necessarily have all the information. You know, we talked about this being quite a, a fast-moving conflict. Um, the leader of the opposition should be being kept in the loop on a lot of what's going on, but not at the sort of the speed and rate as uh, the prime minister. And the prime minister, you know, th- this is a uh, ongoing conflict. With, yeah, the, the British government will be kind of running to keep up as well on this kind of stuff. Um, so it just it feels like it's a. Uh, it's a interesting in a part from a party management perspective because there's been such a such disquiet. There's been quite a big backlash from parts of the party, but it's I think it's revealed some issues. I think certainly early on, I think um, the pro, it revealed that actually the kind of engagement with the parliamentary party and some of the wider membership just is isn't quite there. The kind of the speed of that that. You know, I think you, you could sort of point the finger at the whips and say, actually, the whips should have been the ones that were communicating back to Kia early doors, that this was going to be an issue. And maybe that that's where the the, the gap is, uh, certainly for the parliamentary party. But I have heard before people saying, actually, one of the one of the kind of potential weaknesses of Kia's kind of leadership is that it doesn't always have that connection to the parliamentary party. I think that's one of the things, certainly early on, that could have helped this um but obviously it's kind of gone a bit wider than that and it's in any in any case quite a um a polarizing issue um i don't know if you want to come in malcolm and i because i feel like i'm talking quite a lot on this but um and then we can i'll come back yeah i I think i mean if you know this issue is always a one that you know is very passionately held in the labor party whichever side people are on and I think one thing that we can agree that Keir Storm has done since he's got in, and he's been criticised for it, but I think praised for it as well, is that he's managed to deal with the factional issues quite well. And he's been quite firm in terms of his response to when people have stepped away from the, the, the party line. Now, of course, if you're on the wrong side of that, you, you, you're not a fan of that. But clearly, those are the actions that he's taken. <clears throat> on this particular point, one side is, tends to be taken, and again, these things are always nuanced, but generally speaking, it's people more on the hard left that take one side, and then there's a more a moderate response from who you might expect to be the moderate side of the party from the other side, or a less polarised response. Now, obviously, that's a, you know, I've generalised in one sentence something that would take weeks to unpick, but I think it's, it's proven difficult because it, it does inflame the passion so much. Any time that you've got a really nuanced position, which his position is nuanced, you know, it's 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 almost calling for a ceasefire, but it isn't. It's it's by a different name, and it's acknowledging what he sees as concerns about how that would actually play out in practice. So it's not the fact that they want he wants fighting to continue. He doesn't, but it's how you reach the point of of peace, basically. Um, but again, it's very nuanced, and that's always complicated because people simplify arguments on everything. And, and the ease of a polarised argument is, is just that, that you're there, it's black, it's white, and, you know, people fight from, from there. And it's far easier than getting to, you know, 
it was significant when he said it's the right position for now. Even those two words suggest that there is a an acknowledgement that the position may have to change in, in due course. And he is under pressure. Um, and there's plenty of interesting things that could happen from a party management side. He won't want anything to play into... Because uh, obviously one of the key challenges on Rishi Sunak that's really caught Rishi Sunak is that Rishi is weak. And by comparison, Kira is strong. So anything that undermines that, whatever it is, is very undesirable. Given that, generally speaking, when you when you dumb it right down, out of the two leaders, the strong one wins most of the time. Now, there's lots of other things that factor into that, but it's very difficult to win if you're seen as a weak leader. Um, yeah. Historically, so I think I think that's what it's boiled down to. So as as things move on, I think this. You know, you swing the pendulum one way or the other slightly on where he's sitting, and it gets tricky. Um, so keeping control of the of of the narrative under, you know, and there is, like you say, Carl, it's not just the what you might deem the usual suspects that are taking a specific specific position. So that is going to represent a real challenge for him, and and test that view that he's a strong leader that can take carry the party with him. Yeah, certainly that, and I think, but I think there's also um. So he's in a position at the moment, and this is the case for any opposition leader. He, he, whatever happens, he doesn't know any more than the government knows. Um, it's very difficult to get the kind of foreign policy advice and networks as an opposition party that would allow you to have a position that is different from the government um, and be confident in it in this kind of fast-moving environment. Um, for lots of different reasons. Um, there's also, yeah, let's imagine he, he were prime minister, or let's talk about Rishi Sunak even. Your public in situations like this that are so kind of um, so delicate um, and require a lot of diplomatic engagement if you want to have any impact, um, your public position also. Um, gives allows you to do other things behind the scenes so there's a kind of there's a element of trust you have to put in your leader so it's a, I say it was Keir Starmer and I think that's to some degree the case now but the public position is is one thing um and uh, yeah he uh, certainly a position that he believes in but it also allows in doing that it allows you to have conversations that you might not otherwise have if you take quite a strong position on one side or the other um so for example lisa nandy and david lammy today were having conversations with the egyptian foreign minister um and so i i think that's partly and i'm probably not explaining myself as well as i could do but i think partly why i think this issue is interesting because Keir Starmer and the Labour Party are so far ahead in the polls. The party so far has been very unified uh, behind him. And this is an issue where it's become fractious. And it makes me wonder about what might happen, you know, let's transport ourselves to two, three years in the future. It may not be this issue, but another sensitive issue where he has to tread very, very carefully. He may not be ahead in the polls at that point. You know, he may be in a much weaker political position. And just thinking about how 
the, the, the probably there are party management lessons that he needs to learn now um, when he's trying to firefight this, you know, what's going on currently and, and engage in the right way on what's going on currently. But he needs to think about actually what is what are the things that in you know if something like this happens where the party is you know fractious for you know, potentially completely legitimate reasons how how are we going to manage that i think it's, it's also a question for the kind of wider party it's not just a question for him because there's there, there is going to be there are going to be moments in the future where the labor party is not doing as well in the polls we're in charge of something that's a, quite a difficult issue and we somehow need to get through it because we, you know, um, we don't want, you know, we want a kind of stable Labour government, or I certainly want a stable Labour government, um, and we need to find find the way through, I think. I think as well, Carl, the interesting thing for that is there tends to be two things that you can do, basically, in that situation. You either take a strong position in the way that maybe a Margaret Thatcher would have done and say, this is the right way, and you aim to carry through, and this is the benefit of having a big majority, by the way, that you can handle a rebellion. Um, you go for that, and you just say, you know, yes, there's people, you don't necessarily throw them out, you just accept that on a difficult issue, for example, a free vote, uh, that could happen, given that the chances are the vast, you know, because it's always a challenge when, as well, from a part of management, when you agree with the government, I think you touched on that, you know, so there's going to be people all the time saying, well, actually, forget the issue, you should just be, you know, we're, we're in opposition here, and um, we need to be testing the government, and when you, whenever you agree on anything, it's it's problematic, because it's hard then to criticise later on, which may happen, on the outcomes based on the fact that you were with them all the way, it's happened, you know, you see that with Iraq now, the, everyone was for it at the time, and, you know, in political terms anyway uh, most of them um so yeah that can be done people can always find a way through that but it's certainly a difficult or you do the second option which is to navigate as i think he's probably trying to do now very very sort of balanced form of words but to decide is to divide you risk then not not making anybody happy um by sitting in the middle somewhere and it's very difficult on these polarized issues there's not many of them this is certainly one of them um, but I think that's that's where he is. Um, you just I think with and you see a lot of examples that, that you look at maybe John Major as an example of that way. Tried to talk everything through and it, it just seemed to go on forever. It's it's there's no easy things in leadership and this is maybe one of the biggest challenges of all. Um, and it's coming opposition. So the he's, the downside for the, him with the big pull lead is people are almost looking at him saying, well, we're going to listen to Rishi Sunak, but we're checking you out to see how you handle it because you could be our next Prime Minister. So it is a it is a big test. Um, there has been one suspension. Um, more may follow. We'll see. Yeah. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of happens now because the, the, there has been a kind of allowance for people to hold different... A slightly different view within the party. Um, I mean, I think obviously Sadiq Khan is the is the big one. He's sort of navigated it in an interesting way, and in that he's been quite clear on his position, but won't be drawn on actually the the division with Keir Starmer at all. Um, but it, yeah, even sort of met, you know members of the shadow cabinet at, at one point were allowed that kind of bit of leeway. Whether that continues, not so sure. Um, and as we said at the beginning, the the situation is is moving 
quite quickly. It's it feels like it's escalating. Hopefully, it won't continue to escalate. But um, yeah, we you know we could next Thursday. Who knows where we'll where we'll be with it? Um, and obviously, in yeah, we 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 are talking about the Labour Party. The media, to some degree, are talking about the Labour Party. It's bit yeah. That's why we're talking about it. But the Labour Party isn't the most important thing in this. <laughs> In, in this conflict well, I guess the, just a bit player well, I guess the final thing I'll say on a call is is that we have the luxury of being able to focus on this area and stay away from the more controversial elements of the of the debate and unfortunately he can't do that he's making an attempt to do that um, but people you know it's one of these issues where you take one side or the other and it doesn't matter which side you take really that you're going to get attacked for that view pretty strongly um, and any time that happens, it's politically extremely difficult. And in some ways, you just have to do it at some stage. Um, it's hard to hide from that. And it's, it's something that you, again, I'm not elected. If I was elected and somebody asked me, I'd have to think about it and say what, what I think. At which point, you're upsetting somebody um, in a big way. And it's one of these issues that tends to be somewhat so impassioned that the response can sometimes be quite irrational, um, disproportionate, although I walk into a brick wall by using that word when it's so awful, but that's what I feel can happen. So again, we have a certain luxury that Kia doesn't, um, so it's just extremely hard to manage. Which uh, leads us on to our, the next story we want to touch on, which is, um, I think, what the government wanted to talk about this week um, very much is the AI Safety Summit uh, at Bletchley Park, um, which is talking about, um, well, the safety of what's called frontier AI, so the kind of AI that um, can be a national or international security risk by and large, um, super smart AI. Um, and um, there's been a big... Yeah, the conference has been over the last two days. Um, there's been quite a lot of um, in the. There's been quite a lot in the lead up to it, and I don't, I don't know if you want to to come in on it initially, Malcolm. Uh, I'm happy to talk about it a bit more, but I know you've been following it quite closely. Yeah, um, I think generally I've always been interested in not necessarily the kind of AI as a replacement or anything, but just the development of computers. And I remember in 1996, I took a keen interest in Kasparov versus Deep Blue in chess and I'm, I'm a keen chess player I'm not very good um, but I, I do enjoy it um, and, and obviously that recently there's a great documentary on Netflix I believe called AlphaGo which is the where they developed it's more of a complicated game if you've played Go it's a Stones game uh, played in age of thousands of years um, and that they managed to now develop uh, through neural networks, which is the sort of the computer plays itself over and over, it just gets taught the rules and it learns through re- repetition uh, the best player. And it's now overtaken the humans by such a distance that it's only used for analysis now. There's no point in playing it, you're just going to get beat every single time and it just gets better and better. So it's very easy to move from that stage to a a consideration about and I think the example that I think Elon Musk used not necessarily in, I haven't seen the interview that happened today but certainly recently he said that you know if in terms of you said you wanted to program an AI going very far in the future here but that said we need to program it to help us with net zero 
and they calculated that the actual optimal thing was that humans didn't exist for example it's a very, very extreme example that may never happen but it's it certainly you know it's it's logical insofar as if a non-emotive logical decision was taken you could see where that might come in and at that point what happens you know because it it, it, it it's an extreme example, um, but I think I couldn't sit here and say, "Well, that's never going to happen." Um, it probably wouldn't be in our lifetimes, but you know, we do have to mitigate because there's a tendency to push on for what we call advancement and forget. Because you know, I think there's a great one where the um, the if you see, I don't know whether you've both seen the video, listeners may have done, with the robotic dog, and the and the, the push it over, and it learns to stand up. And it looks quite cruel because they keep kicking it over. And they said, but don't forget, it's a robot. <laughs> so they're kicking it over and it learns to stand up. And after a while, it it learned to resist the pushing. It sort of changed its physical position. So it's that type of learning, like optimized programming and, and how it responds. But yeah, I think it's a, it's an important issue. I, I use ChatGPT. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I find it quite useful. But, you know, I think it's quite worrying if, if you write for example articles for a living on terms of getting paid for like search engine optimized articles that i would imagine your job's in, in at risk at this stage because you can with the right prompts you can make write a fantastic tight article it does it comes out quite functional if you use it at the moment if you actually try it it comes out very it's sort of repetitive so it doesn't have a flow it's not like an essay like it's not brilliant but just conversationally i'll hand back carl to maybe always he hasn't spoken for a bit um i to just to test it i wrote uh, to go back a long time so not since the new version came out i said write me a speech for a labor party hustings event for a candidate who wanted to become the area's uh labor party candidate for the next general election and it wrote me a speech that with about 10 percent worth of work would have gone down very, very well and been an impressive speech. It was written beautifully. It, it was a bit repetitive, but um, I was very shocked and impressed at how actually how good it was. And it would have given me a lovely start to then go off and make it really good. So I'll hand back. Um, yeah, Owen, have you been following this? Not, not really. Uh, I mean, I'm interested by AI, but I'm not going to take a massive position on it without knowing more. I don't know enough to actually about it in general, but I, I guess the fundamental problem is that it's only as good at the minute as the initial program, which tends to be done by human beings. So there's that. But there are two fundamental ironies in the whole conference. First is he chose Bletchley, and by choosing Bletchley, he's basically said that the last time we were any good at programming was over 80 years ago in the Second World War. <laughs> and you can't see, I know we've got a Tory party that's nostalgic for the past, but really you don't go to Blexi to do that. And secondly, and this is, I mean, this only should have arrived in my head uh, this evening, but the, the real irony is that the first programmable computer that is in Blexi is called Colossus. And it's enormous. And yet we have in Rishi Sunak, somebody who is so diminutively small that you probably couldn't see him behind it. And secondly, it, it just proves how diminished we are in the world that we have this kind of obsessive compulsive desire to kind of go and be seen with what we used to do with um, punch card type stuff. Um, having said that, it is quite important. But as somebody said, uh, I think it was in The Guardian, there's already 10, if not 15 other 
groupings like the conference that he, he started out. And it's like, well, we all know why he's done it. And it is looking to after the election, potentially having to stand down from his seat. Um, I'm going to America, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Otherwise, I'll start talking too much about the small people. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I thought it was just what he wanted to have all his mates around because he, he's a big sort of Silicon Valley tech buff, isn't he? Um, sorry, Malcolm, you were going to say? Uh, no, no I was, I was, all I was going to say, just in response to what Owen said about it just being as good as the programme, is where AI is at now is the ability for it to, to self-teach within parameters so it can actually get better than the programme is already in terms of, for example, with Go became so strong at playing more than any player could ever teach it to be and it's they've almost moved on to the that's that's the big breakthrough and i think with ai now we're in a situation where it can't be disinvented and it's there whether we like it or not and it's going to play a part in you know there are certain tasks if you just you want to list build for example it's it's quite good and i think the issue comes in terms of ethics how do we retain analog skills because that's important, you know, people will need them. There's clearly an issue with children using it for homework. Um, and the, it's how do, that's, you know, it's important that I was quite lucky that I was at the correct age in born in 1981, where I never used the internet until the first day of university. I was very keen to get my login details, I remember. And I logged in for the first time on the, and it was even Google at the time, it was Alta Vista. If you can go back that far, but I, so that so I did all of my. Um, I never did a single piece of homework on a computer. And then when I went to university, I did all of them on a computer. It was just literally that clear break. That could only have happened at the age that I was. My school experience, I would have got much better grades if I could have used a computer because that neural link between my hands and I can now type stuff out and do it at such a pace. I could never write that fast I didn't, and I never wanted to. So I never created like pages and pages of homework where I would have written, I can now write an article for you of 2000 words in about, you know, half an hour. I mean, obviously it needs to be polished, but I can type so quickly that I would just produce so much more. So it does fundamentally change it. And I think schools detecting how children are using AI because they are, and people are doing it for, I mean, Owen, you've just recently done a, very interesting thesis um there will be people doing not necessarily that work but some of the writing through these types of generative ais i know you didn't i hope um and i'm sure you didn't he's crossing his fingers he's lying he did it all himself i'm telling you now excellent piece of work um and even ai would be like we're 100 years away from being as good as owen um but i think yeah people but people will be cutting corners on because it's I mean, you you know how long your thesis took to write it would be very tempting for someone who, who didn't have your ethical commitment to doing it right to cut corners. Yeah, I mean, to be, to be fair on that, my thesis is a bit niche, so there's very few people who would be interested in it, so that's quite helpful. Um, but, I mean, I think you're people using ChatGPT and stuff. I mean, there are loads of examples where people use it for undergraduate essays. A couple of master's students I know have got caught with it. But the biggest problem, like you say, is... At the opposite end, there will come a point where you can't pick up the fact somebody has used some kind of program to do it for them. So it is ethically curious, at the very least, uh, but there's been no kind of 
particular policy platform come from the last two days so far that I can see. So it probably was just a big jamboree and possibly last time before the next election. So who knows? Do you think it would be a vote winner, Carl, for AI to for there to be limits placed to legislation on the development of AI? I know it's hard to do because it's kind of a global thing, but because I know it, and you can't really legislate on uses because people are already They're... not allowed to use it. But do you think that would work if if the sort of talked about mitigations and policy in terms of manifestos? Um, I mean, I think it's something that the, the parties are going to have to grapple with. They're sort of starting to grapple with. Um, I think Italy have, have Italy banned it, or there there are countries that have. Um, there 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 are different approaches in different countries already. Um, I'm not somebody who believes in the kind of existential risk of AI becoming super smart and um, overtaking us and then destroying the world. Um, I think it's obviously possible in in theory, but at the moment we are completely in control of that, um, and it doesn't feel like it's that's what's coming. I think that existential risk has been talked up on purpose by people who have a massive financial interest in regulation that slows down uh, other companies <laughs> from developing AI after they've put quite a lot of money into it. Um, sorry, Malcolm. Italy did ban ChatGPT in March 2023. There you go. See, that's my that's my extensive knowledge of, on this issue coming to the fore. It's actually banned in um, 15 countries. Yeah, and some employers have banned it. I mean, there are obviously there's data protection issues is is one thing as well, which uh, particularly at the moment. Um, but I think the 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 interesting thing about the the conference is that. Rishi Sunak had to kind of beg Steele and borrow to get this to happen. He basically, it was the thing he took to Joe Biden earlier in the year and managed to convince the US, and that was his big win. Um, the preparation for it, there's been loads of stories sort of dripping out the last few weeks that they kind of messed up the approach to China. They almost didn't get a representative. They managed it. Um, there was some talk of whether, you know, Kamala Harris coming um, is a big deal, I think. But it wasn't Joe Biden, you know, it wasn't a kind of, it wasn't a world leader level meeting. It is obviously the first of its kind. You can kind of chalk it up as a win. But actually, you know, if you look at the photos from it, I didn't recognize many people there. I think that's partly why Elon Musk was there, because he's the kind of star power. It's partly why he's agreed to do this weird thing on Twitter where they ask each, well, it's going to go out on X, sorry, you know, um, where they ask each other questions. None of us have seen it yet. Um but I'm sure it'll be a bit awkward and strange because they're both awkward and strange people, <laughs> fundamentally. <laughs> um, so, but he brought some of the star power and some of that kind of bringing some of that media attention. He, yeah, he didn't say much at the conference reportedly, but he did say stuff to the media. Uh, one of the things was kind of ridiculing the politicians that were there because that's Elon Musk. That's what he does. You know, you can't trust him with with anything um hard to hurt him so, financially isn't it i mean <laughs> so i think it's it's kind of interesting in the sense that the that he's kind of pushed this boulder uphill and managed to get something out of it 
and it probably will lead to stuff further down the line that he can, you know, if he wants a legacy, then it, this can be it. Because there are, you know, there's now going to be two more of these conferences in different places, um, and at some point it's going to get to a higher level. I mean, I think there are definite risks to AI. I mean, there's a thing that exists called Worm GPT on the dark web that you can basically use for lots of nefarious things like writing spam emails and kind of trying to defraud people and things like that. There are, there's likely to be, you know over time people that deep you don't want is a big but... problem as well isn't it Carl deep fake AI with the and you're going to see that effect in elections when you know a video comes out of Keir Starmer saying something outrageous that he just didn't do yeah and that's the, and that's my sort of that's my sort of skepticism of the Musk stuff because he his comments drive a very specific agenda they're obviously to get him uh, media attention but they're focused you know he's talking about oh environmentalists might decide that um yeah we don't need as many people and they, yeah that kind of is pushing to a political agenda where actually there's actual dangers of ai like you say they're the deep fakes they're the misinformation um i mean one thing that hasn't really talked about but has been in the back of my mind for, for a while is that you know we have drones that you can attach weapons to you could give that if you give that artificial intelligence and, you know, say target this group of people, that could keep going for a while before it has any, you know, before a, a human could stop it. Um, and presumably, you know, the AI is being developed in the kind of defense space. That's, yeah, that there are huge dangers in that. Um, so that it, it is a, it's something that definitely needs to happen. I think, but I think there are interests being pursued, um, particularly by the big tech companies that, you know, some of which um, are the are things that need to be addressed. We need a kind of proper regulatory framework. Um, but some of it, I think, is a bit of self-interest. Uh, the final thing I would say is that what I would have expected a normal functioning government to do if they push so hard for a conference like this uh, to be held the week before the King's speech, I would have expected them to announce a piece of legislation that was going to be in that King's speech. But what Rishi Sunak did, because they're not ready, I think, um, as opposed to what he said, what Rishi Sunak said was say, actually, we're not going to we're not going to legislate on this. We want <laughs> we want we want to have a low regulation environment so that so as to attract. Uh, the big AI companies in the UK. I'm not convinced that that is going to work. I think actually most AI companies want a level of regulation and a level of certainty, and I think it's just on preparedness on the government's part. And Owen is nodding, um, but I'd be interested in you guys' views on that. I would. I think if they want a bill, they could get ChatGPT to write a bill on AI regulation, and that would be ironic. <laughs> But I also think that there are risks to it. There are also opportunities as well if it's done right. I don't think the politicians understand the risks yet. I think that it probably needs people to go in and just like say, you know, these are the... Because it sounds quite implausible, some of the you know the risks where you say, oh, they're going to be controlling weapons. You think, okay, yeah, okay. It's all a bit a bit like in the movies, isn't it? You know, But yeah, this, is, this could happen and it's advancing quickly. And I guess they also need to understand where the advancements have because what's publicly available that we all get excited about is just a very, very small... You know, version of, of probably the, the capacity and the abilities that it has. We probably we're sitting here talking about what we think the abilities of it are. We 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 don't know, 
and I think that's what they need to know. They need to be getting briefed saying, you know, these are the capabilities, this, this is what it can actually do. And there's also, just to go back on the deep fake thing for just very, very quickly, um, the, the one upside is that if I do say something really stupid and get done, then I'm just going to say I was deep faked. So, yeah, if, any, if anyone gets offended by the podcast, it was Mal GPT <laughs> and not me. Um, yeah, I think... Sorry, Erin, were you okay? Um, again, kind of going back to the Guardian, there was a, another comment thing on the conference. Because uh, he pushed this sort of neo kind of uh, Atlantic bridge style thing where we're going to be the bit in between the US economy on uh, AI and the EU, neatly forgetting that the EU has already invested very heavily in, in tech and AI. Uh, so we're basically at the point where we're pushing for something because we are unprepared. And ultimately, that means the King's Speech is going to be quite thin because they have nothing left in the tank. So it's kind of, it, it's almost like he's gone, oh, it's big and shiny. Uh, and then realised that there's nothing there to do. And it's, maybe that's indicative of where we are with the Bob and Tory party, but I don't know. I'll stop there. At the end of the day, what would you rather talk about? Gaza or AI? <laughs> it's uh, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the attraction of um, getting into this debate. But I think a lot of uh, this is an interesting point on this, actually, that finally uh, my last point on it, Carl, is, is to say that AI piques the interest of people more widely than politics. So that's why they're interested in it, because they're going into a space where people don't normally engage with them and they're, and they're listening. So that's, again, you know, anytime you connect with, with wide portions of the electorate, that maybe never look at interest in policy before. That's that's to their benefit to try and appear cool because they're not doing very well and they're looking for ways to engage. And Rishi's, like you say, is, is safe space is technology. So it's a fairly safe place to send him to and not expect him to drop any huge clangers. Yeah, no, I mean, it is. In a, I think more broadly, it's kind of a, it's an interesting, it's a label that makes people interested yeah, when actually sometimes you're just talking about quite boring data protection legislation or or other things that you know are about the kind of building blocks of, of tech more generally um so yeah it's it's certainly useful from that perspective um the i guess the what the final bit that i is uh, before we move on there was a bit just before the conference where they where he tried to make it a dividing line with the labor party basically saying that ai is coming for you um, and, and it's only me that can protect you from it. I don't think that's ever gonna fly. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm sort of exaggerating slightly, but that was basically the message. Um, and I, uh, I think there was a tweet. Um, I, I'll have to dig it out. Super soon, but yeah, but I think, but it, it sort of it slightly falls into the I'll I'll save you from the seven bins kind of. Uh, you know, I don't think that's <laughs> it's gonna work. Um, Are but you suggesting that he didn't? Save us from <laughs> I haven't got seven bins outside, so you must have saved them. Yeah, fine, yeah. yeah. I'll write in my thank you letter tomorrow. Um, so, um, moving on, uh, we've had the first uh, Scotland, uh, poll of Sc- uh, Scottish voters in a very long time that's put Labour ahead. Um, what's written here is the word yippee. <laughs> yes, I, I like to be descriptive on my uh, point. Do, do we do we have any more to say on that? I'll let Owen go first. <laughs> um, 
Well, obviously, Yippee, I, I agree. Um, but uh, it's been a long time coming. It was obvious there was a shift in opinion, I would say, in 2018 19. Uh, I mean, the slight issue with. Scottish polls is that their CLPs are based on uh, Holyrood constituencies rather than, say, Westminster constituencies. So you've kind of got a weird mix of opinion, which doesn't quite necessarily reflect uh, Westminster. But it's intriguing, and especially after we've got uh, Rather Glen uh, and everything else. Uh, it's great news, but we can't be complacent, I don't think. Uh, having said that, Given that Ash Reagan uh, moved to the Alba Party uh, during the week, uh, and the leader, the ever joyous Alex, uh, ice cream sharer Salmond, uh, didn't give her a standing ovation for her speech, it kind of says everything about their party, really. But hey, she is the leader in, of the group of one. Um, but it's, it, it's been a long time coming, and it will be interesting to see how the SNP. And the Tory groups in Holyrood splinter. And I think one of the people doing the analysis said that it is direct SNP Tory switches to the Labour Party. So if the plan continues, we're on for a decent whack of seats. Yeah, I mean, I think there were there was some analysis saying that it could reduce the, if it carries on like this, it could reduce the SNP back to six seats in Westminster, which is a huge. It's a huge centre. I mean, we've been talking, when we've talked about Scottish polls before, it's been effectively an even split with the SNP slightly ahead. You know, we're talking about you know, maybe maybe getting 24 or 26 seats. This is a whole different ball game um, and makes what's what happens in the rest of the UK um, well, it's just had a huge impact on us getting the majority. I think it's interesting. I mean, I sometimes find and I often find in politics when something happens that I think like it's not it shouldn't have been such a surprise but this really does surprise me actually but when and, I, and I've said this you know when you say something you look back at something you've said in the past and then it comes to pass here and I didn't predict it and I think ah because the the switch in 2015 was so big and so stark it the vote therefore could have switched back and it has it looks like it has possibly or it is in the process of doing so and yet i thought that oh well that's it the smp is just going to hold this sort of just this easy vote of just saying every time well we're going to find a creative way of making it about independence you know sort of everything else it's just going to be this is the only issue that we care about and you need to show your loyalty to us by voting for independence voting for us and let's be honest over a couple of election three elections that appeared to work they found ways of doing it. And then, you know, they'd had a referendum and it became like a sort of a protest vote against, you know, the result that actually happened. And we want another goal. <clears throat> and, you know, people are coming around and thinking about different things. That was, I think it's a, it's one, it's great timing for the Labour Party because any gain in Scotland, we were talking about majorities and pretty much writing off Scotland as an SNP sort of throw. And if you're talking about getting the majority of seats in Scotland and then are we being too cautious it could even be like back like you said back to six seats which is nobody would have predicted that yet it's just a reversal of a change that happened eight years ago it's back to where it was and you know politics did go through a crazy period you know Brexit 2015 in Scotland 
you know the, the the turmoil and what just happened eventually is we try these little dalliances of quasi extremism and then we come back because we realize that moderate it's not perfect but it's better than the alternative and i think that's maybe where we're headed to now as we move into the 2020s and you know we look back through history i think this period will be a place where they talk about politics being berserk and there'll be a period of calm and i think i hope so because that's more where i sit as a rational person but yeah it's uh I, I didn't think that would include scotland so for it to be actually apparently happening and i'm not complacent about it um but it's hard again as we look at the tories and say what would you pin your hat on to say things will be fine it's becoming that way for the smp too it's hard to see where their recovery or survival is coming from it seems to be a basket case so do you think we could see a uh, scottish government back in holyrood sometime soon then Actually, do. It... I th- yeah, it's, uh, there's every reason to be positive. It's one of these places where you probably won't know the result till it happen. But I think, you know, if, like I say, you've got every reason to be optimistic. I agree. I, mean, the, I think the SNP ship sailed with the uh, failed ferries contract. And it's going to cost more to cancel a contract than delivering two, if not seven, new ferries for the uh, for Kelmac. Um, and it's. It's a nice situation to be in, but it, I guess we kind of need to see what happens next week with the churn of the polls. Um, but we shall see. What you said there was really interesting because the Conservatives in this country seem to do very well when they get hyper-local and they get really local campaigns that fix it on a specific issue that people can care about. In Scotland, it's the opposite. They don't do well at local. They actually need to macro it out and just say it's all about independence. So if it goes local like that, that's a problem for them. Um, I mean, I, I think with the, the change of leadership in the SNP, it, it's gone from being robotics, the wrong word given the previous uh, topic, but um, being very siloed, there was no way that the messaging would be diffused if it went beyond the wall kind of thing. It, it was literally just straight down the line, done. Hamza Yusuf comes in, I'm sure he's a very good politician locally uh, and he's got lots of support, but it's literally just split the whole party in in twain, really, with the whole group arguing against each, each other, uh, all the splits that are going on. And I think the more people see that, uh, plus the fact they're implanting Tory austerity in Scotland across the board. Uh, so from schools to hospitals, it's it's failing and they have failed Scotland completely. Uh, I could go on for that for hours, but I won't, because uh, I, I can get very cross about them. But they are the Tartan Tories, simple as. So. I, th- I think one of the problems that they had was, and this is no disrespect to Humza Yusuf or anybody else, if he took Nicola Sturgeon away, people would struggle to name many. You know, you, you had Alex Salmon for many years, you had Nicola Sturgeon, and you had nobody else. There was a power vacuum when she went. Nobody had the profile that could be that stable leader that that party was such a huge majority would be able to solidify around um there was maybe a couple of names and i'm sure to even name them and i think that's maybe you've always got to have that big figure to hold the support and there's certainly lots of things happened that have caused sport to drift but they didn't have that big big character with which to sort of rally around um and it's i think that's helped to sort of if you think of it like it, laces have been loosened and it's just everything starting to flow out so, do we have time 
to talk about Rachel Reeves and Wikipedia. Very quickly. I'll just mention what I... It's, I'll, it's AI. Me, and... me very quickly just give my view and then you can give yours quickly and that's it. I think it was just worth mentioning, Carl, because the, it, we, we've talked about messaging. We've talked about polling. <clears throat> this was clearly a, an embarrassing one for Rachel Reeves. The, you know, the shadowy shadow chancellor, she's lifted stuff from Wikipedia. I think the, I actually think what happened here is that she probably tasked her team, who are very, very busy, to collect a lot of research for the book. And they've done a very quick sift of things they've found online, copied and pasted huge wads of text. You know, I've known it be done. Um, I haven't done it myself, but it's an easy, like I say, you look for corners to cut when you're very busy. And I think someone's just whacked it all into a big document and then it's been used. Uh, it hasn't been rewritten properly. It's probably, you know, I, I don't know if I, I take people at their word, whether she sat at home doing all this herself, I don't know. But I think what's actually happened is it's a failure of attribution and you've got to be very careful stuff like this. And people will, when you're a politician, I mean, she should know this by now, to be fair, they will check everything. Um, I'm not sure. And I listened to the, the person who, who sort of caught her, so to speak, and said that, you know, that was a random sort of, oh, I checked this and... I recognise this uh, phrase from something I'd read. I thought, hang on a minute, you've just put it all through the. You've copy scaped everything. You know, it's just how things are done these days. If you're writing a book, you copy scape it before you publish it, and it's a free website. You whack it in and see what comes up, because you just got to be very, very careful. Because they will. So yeah, they're going to fix the attribution in future print editions. I don't think it's a huge like. It's not a criminal thing or anything. It's it's just a, an embarrassing one, and maybe. It might have took a bit of the wind. You know, she had that very good conference, it's fair to say, where she was very strong. She came across excellently in her speech. It was probably the... I've, I can't think of a speech that went down better from someone that sort of... It was her sort of moment, wasn't it? And this might have took a bit of the hot air out of that a little bit. But, you know, everyone's human. And I imagine there's been some uh, hairdryer treatment going on in the in the office about how it's actually happened. Um, but I'm sure it's not a mistake she'll make again. But you've just got to be careful with stuff like that. I mean, you, again, Owen, looking at yourself who's published stuff, you know, you've just got to check these things because you might have inadvertently written a phrase that you think's excellent that somebody else just wrote somewhere and you, you may have to change it. You've just got to check these things out and make sure that you, you've got everything on the up and up. And, you know, if you're a politician, you should know already that people are, are watching. We had one person when I worked for Pat who used to check every single one of her expense claims. For the whole time she was in, seven years, that was his hobby. You know, fair enough, these things are there to be scrutinised, but to sit there for seven years and do it every single week, I mean, that's that's what you get in when you're a politician. I think on the, um, the writing side of it, if it has been written by committee in terms of the office rather than her personally, it is very easy to forget to put a a footnote in or to put a um, citation in. I did that. Luckily, I had a very good supervisor, so that, that was picked up before it was submitted. But it's not unusual. But politically, it probably is. I mean, Gordon Brown didn't have that problem because he's so kind of so done that kind of stuff. Um, but like I say, it's not that unusual. It's unfortunate, an unfortunate timing, but it's not unusual unless everything has gone through her and she's missed it. But that, there again, we're speculating. So it's kind of... I think it's careless rather than conspiracy, to be honest, because, you know, nobody's mm. going to maliciously do this, take that risk. It's clearly just been a, a mistake. 
um, and something that I think you know she she wouldn't have expected that was the case. Um, and again, if you can use a Hillary Ben speech. Just make sure you tell people you have. I mean, it's not a massive mm. problem, but it's just one of those things. And I think it was just one of those embarrassing things that creep up. And that'll happen to everybody. Like you look, you, if you did like a, a list of things like this that's happened to politicians, you could go on forever because like, you, you know, it, there's just people are always scratching around for stuff and they'll find something. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're looking for a scandal that's in this kind of space that's relatable, I think nicking stuff off of Wikipedia is quite relatable for most people. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's to be a... fair, Wikipedia is good, like the vast majority of the time. Like people sit there writing yeah. stuff. Have you ever seen how fast they do it? Like if something happens, you know, like for example, when somebody passes away, you go on their Wikipedia page as soon as it's announced it's there. The day of death, it's just on. People must, there must be people out there who just sit on it like, and update it. And generally speaking, you know, it's an excellent starting point for people's profiles, for example. And this is why I get interested. If you, her book was writing profiles about people's lives, okay? Now, if I wanted to write a profile about your biography, Carl, right, and somebody's already written one, I can't change it that much because it's kind of just what happened. So, like, the, the only thing you've got to make sure that you're doing is rewriting it. So, you, you know, because if I've got a biography, like, of Owen, you may as well just copy it to some degree because it's the right information. You know, you went to this school, you, you went to this uni, you did this thesis. It's very hard for me to rewrite the title of your thesis on because that's what it is. So it's like you've just got to be, you've just got to box clever with it and realize if you're writing biographies and profiles about people, you need to fully rewrite them. Otherwise, you copy because they will be written and they'll be accurate. Therefore, they're factually accurate. You've got to rewrite them though. You can't just keep. So I actually think add some sympathy because if you're writing profiles of people, that's their life and if it's been written about before you, you've got how, how do you change all that you can't change the date of birth can you you can't change where they went to school or which street they grew up in so there is going to be similarities yeah i mean i did uh, i mean the only thing i'd, I'd add is uh, so yeah I, I think it's it's a sort of dog in a teacup i think the tories were a bit weird about it we <laughs> tried to kind of make it an attack you know same old labor as you go the roof what all Jeremy Hunt has to do, and he can only do it once, is as soon as he stands up going, I'd like to thank her for advance no notice of her speech. Um, I checked her Wikipedia page this morning. I mean, that's it. Just That's all you got to do. It just There's only one hit, take it, she'll laugh and move on. I don't think it's it's not a sign of any dubious intent. It's just an error. I'll be honest, I'm totally confident of that. I don't know for a fact, but I'm certain it's just, you know, someone's just said, right, get me researching 2,000 people, and they've just gone out and just copied everything. And done it as quickly as they can, and they probably shouldn't have done that, but you know, people will do that. Yeah, uh, like I say, uh, the last thing I was going to say, Malcolm, before I was so rudely interrupted. Do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> I was going to say she should have. She should have come out and said she was going to donate some of the proceeds of the book to Wikipedia. I thought that would have been quite a nice little. Um, no, I think she should write yeah. to me and say thank you for all the research you did. I mean, that's that's just <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, but I wouldn't have. Caught... But again, like I say, easy, easy to do. You know, if she said get me research, you want to? It's probably right. But the, no, she shouldn't have done that. I mean, I wouldn't have written that book anyway. But it's, it took forever. Have you ever? Have you ever been tempted to write a book, Carl? Final question. Uh, I mean. Book. Uh, not a politics one, but yes, like a novelty one. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's. I don't think we've got time to go into it, but I did start writing one uh, a I few years back. 
and then I wasted my time on politics instead. <laughs> oh, and I know you're writing one, but have you ever fancied a, a fiction one? Um, the Adventures well, of Bishop Grotesque and Lincoln. Who knows? Oh, well, Bishop Big Bollocks, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's what his uh, name gonna, means. Gonna, well, that's one cut. We're going to have to bleep that out, I think, Malcolm, aren't we? From, uh... I can bleep it or delete it. I'm not sure what's more fun. I haven't got a bleep noise. <laughs> um, so I think that just about wraps things up for this week. Yeah. <laughs> Any final words, Owen and Malcolm? Uh, no, I can't possibly top that, so I'll just leave it there, I think. And thank everyone for listening. <laughs> and apologise for any bad language heard. Uh, thanks to both of you for co-hosting and with that we're done for another week have a great week and we hope you tune in next time